What does it mean when we say that the Bible is literal? How can we trust that the prophecies of Christ's return are literal and not figurative? And what is the Taylor rule of Bible interpretation? You won't know the answer to that last one because I just made it up, but you'll learn what it is today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a brand new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, and I'm literally a minister, and I will literally be your Bible teacher today. I'm also a grammar Nazi. I'm not going to say I'm literally a grammar Nazi because I don't know exactly what that means. <laughs> Probably not something good, but I, I'm just saying I care a lot about what words mean and using them correctly. Okay. And listen, I know we're all human. I make mistakes all the time. I talk on this podcast. I'm sure I make grammatical mistakes left and right all the time, but there are some things that I, <laughs> I just can't bring myself to do. One of them is misusing the word literally because this is one of my pet peeves. It's one of those things that drives me crazy is that people say literally all the time, and yet they don't seem to have a grasp of what that word actually means, that it actually does have a, well, a literal meaning. <laughs> to, I don't know a better way to say it. Um, people say literally all the time when the things that they're saying aren't even literal. Like they'll say, he literally scared me to death. Well, if that were true, then we would not be having this conversation. Or someone might say, I literally did a million push-ups yesterday. Well, if that was true, then you would still be doing them. <laughs> it literally has a meaning. It was really popular for teenage girls a few years back to, to say, I literally can't even. <laughs> like That was all they would say. I literally can't even right now. I literally can't even. I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, I, do, I do think I've identified with that emotion a few times before, but I, I couldn't define it for you. Um, it's all the more infuriating to me that they actually changed the definition in the dictionary of the word literally, that it, it now has a second definition. So the first definition was, the original definition, in a literal sense or manner, aka actually. So if you were to say that your boss literally bit your head off last week, it means he actually did it. And that right now your head is currently navigating his small intestine. That's what the word literally actually means if you use it correctly, um, which most people just don't. Now, the dictionary has actually included a new definition, which is in effect or virtually, <laughs> which, which means the exact opposite of literally. It means like figuratively. It means not literally. So because so many people were misusing this word, literally now has two definitions, which are literally and not literally. <laughs> in other words, the thing it means, and also the exact opposite of the thing it means. Ah! I, I literally can't even with this dictionary right now, guys. So I, I know you didn't tune in. Tune in to, I know you didn't tune in today, though, to hear me talk about the dictionary. You want to hear me talk about the Bible, um, because this is a Bible study. It's not a dictionary study. So let's let's talk about Bible today and. And I want to talk about what we mean when we say that the Bible is literal, 
Because I see this attack levied against Christians often, and this has been levied against me before, many times on the internet. People will scoff at you. <laughs> you think the Bible is literal? And I never, I'm never quite sure how to respond to that because I don't know exactly what they mean by literal. I mean, I recognize that the Bible has symbolism. It has figurative language in it. Of course I do. But I don't think that's what people mean when they get mad that you're taking the Bible literally. Um, I think they're mad that you actually believe the stuff that's in the Bible. Many times even people who, well, I'll say call themselves Christians will get mad if you are a Christian who believes the Bible literally. You know, when people get upset about this, this is this is what they mean. Do you literally believe in an Adam and an Eve and a, the flood of Noah and Jonah and the whale and that all those things the Bible speaks about, you believe that all those things literally happened? Because some people, again, even those who call themselves Christians, they'll say that those are just fables, that they're meant to teach us things, teach us spiritual realities. But we aren't supposed to think that they actually happened. There's a there's the the non-Christian crowd out there who just believes it's all made up, and then there's even the so-called Christian crowds who are just willing to dismiss it as soon as it becomes convenient for them to do that. And I don't agree with those crowds. I believe that everything that the Bible says is literally true, even whenever it uses symbolic language. But I believe it's talking about things that did or actually will really happen. Everything that the Bible says either has happened or it will happen. So some some people, and, and even good Christians, they come to the Bible and they kind of don't read it very carefully sometimes, and they get confused. Um, one place where I see this happen a lot is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, talking about the baptism of Jesus. And and so all you, all you know, you've probably seen the pictures before of the dove coming down on Jesus, and this was the Holy Spirit. Let's read what the, what the Bible actually says about that. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So how many pictures have you seen where there's like a dove coming and, and resting upon Jesus as he comes up out of the water? I've seen this depicted countless times, lots and lots of pictures. Some people think that the Holy Spirit possessed a dove or transformed into a dove or something like that. That is not what the Bible just said happened. It says he descended like a dove. So that means not literally. The Spirit descended like a dove. He didn't look like a dove. And so there's a lot of... There's a lot of characteristics that we could say are similar between a dove and the Holy Spirit. The dove makes an excellent symbol of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not a dove. And so sometimes people, even good Christians, I'll say, they don't always read their Bibles carefully, and they 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 don't understand what is symbolic and what is literal in the Bible. Um, so it's literally true that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, but he wasn't a literal dove. He was like a dove. And so we need to interpret things as they are written in the Bible. But then on the other side of that coin, when the Bible says something actually happened, then we need to believe that it is literally true. So this word literally, it can throw Christians for a loop. That's why I want to talk about it today. People get especially confused when it comes to things that are in prophecy or in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of symbols, a lot of symbolism in those in those things. But those symbols mean real, literal things. So let's talk today about how the Bible is literal, as we are finally, finally, finally going to actually finish Ezekiel chapter 20 today, literally.
So this is our fourth lesson in Ezekiel 20. It's a long chapter, but I think it's one that was worth taking our time to pour through. And you're actually getting a bonus episode this week because we already had one Monday. And I'm, and I'm doing bonus episodes at the moment, and there's a few reasons why. One, I'm trying this Thursday thing because I would like to run some bonus episodes continuing on into the summer with bonus episodes. Um, and so I did one last week on Stephen and the Sanhedrin, and it actually got even more downloads than a typical episode does. So I'm going to like, okay, well, I'm going to keep trying this then. Um, I mean, I was expecting maybe it would be a little bit lower since it wasn't my normal day to release a podcast. It got actually higher downloads. So we'll, we'll keep trying it. And if you don't want to listen to that much of me, then just <laughs> then don't. But, it, you know, it's going to be there for the people who want it. I'm not going to be releasing an episode next week on Monday. So you won't hear from me for a little bit longer. Um, I, the reason is Monday is a holiday. And I know most people won't listen if I release it on a holiday. So you're, it, this would probably have been our, our Monday episode, but you're just getting it early this time. And I'm going to try to come back next week with another new episode on Thursday. That's when I'm going to launch my attack on the LGBT lobby in dishonor of Pride Month, because that begins a week from now. So I'm gearing up for that as we speak. It'll be good to have Monday off because I'm launching a big salvo <laughs> on Thursdays in June. Okay, let's get into Ezekiel 20. Virtually all the commentaries agree that Ezekiel 20 ended with verse 44. Verse 45 carries, uh, sorry, it, it begins a new thought that is going to carry over into chapter 21. And so we're not getting into the official chapter 21 today, but but this, this is really starting what's, what Ezekiel is going to be talking about for the entire next chapter. So starting at verse 45 of chapter 20, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the southland, Preach against the south and prophesy against the forest land in the Negeb. Say to the forest of the Negeb, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will kindle a fire in you and it shall devour every green tree in you and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched and all faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. And we'll stop there. Here's another prophecy of judgment that Ezekiel is, is stating. He's told to face the Southland and to prophesy against them. And your Bible translation, might not it might not say the Southland, it might say something else, but basically it means a region to the south of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to keep this short because it basically means exactly what it says. <laughs> God says he's going to torch the whole region south of Jerusalem. But what we're going to see is that people don't believe it whenever God says this. But it is what's going to happen. Now, why don't people believe? Well, perhaps it's because most of the prophecies have been about Babylon attacking from the north. And so if Babylon's attack comes from the north, maybe the Israelites are thinking, oh, then I guess we'll just flee to the south. But God is telling them here, that's not going to be an option because you're going to have the sword to your north and you're going to have fire to your south. So, you know, pick your poison here. But the, but poison is promised. Oh, and by the way, I know I've mentioned this Lord of the Rings show called Rings of Power a few times lately. Um, but if you've seen it, go back and read those last four verses again. They like totally describe the first season. I'm sorry. I'm spoiling it for everybody, but I, I should have warned you. I'm sorry. But I think those verses totally spoil it. And I think that's why the Israelites couldn't stand Ezekiel because he spoiled the Rings of Power show. He did it like 2,500 years ago, but he did it right there. Okay. Verse 49. Um, but as I said, the Israelites don't take this threat seriously. So what we read so far was really just build up to verse 49, because that's what today's lesson is actually about. 
is that the people don't believe what he was saying, and they try to explain away God's threats. Verse 49, then I said, ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? That's all. That's And that's the end of the chapter. Then I said, ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? So let's break this down. Ezekiel says, ah, Lord God, that's a statement of disbelief. The people can't believe Ezekiel, and Ezekiel can't believe that the people can't believe him. So Ezekiel turns to God, and he says, God, I am shocked. I am in awe at how stupid these people are, that they will not take me seriously right now. Like, so he can't believe it. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to say. He's like, what more could I say? He, Ezekiel literally can't even. And what, what can he not understand here? That, that they are misinterpreting God's very real, basic threats they're misinterpreting it. They're spiritualizing it away, saying it's just a parable, that it's just a figurative judgment, that it's like some kind of metaphorical judgment. It's a spiritual judgment. It doesn't mean the Southlands are actually literally going to burn. They're saying it must mean something else. And Ezekiel doesn't know how to even get through to these people anymore. He's at the end of his rope. He's like, God, I have tried to tell them as plainly as I can, and they just won't hear it. I don't know how to make it any more plain to them. I've said it as clearly as possible. I said the Southland will burn. And they said, I, I wonder what it means when he says the Southland's going to burn. I wonder what that's supposed to mean. And so Ezekiel just doesn't know what to do anymore. Guys, if we are going to understand God correctly, we really have to get a good grasp of when the Bible is being literal and when the Bible is being symbolic, okay? Symbolic or figurative, metaphor, non-literal. That's what that means, okay? So let me give you a few rules of thumb to try to take with you when you're trying to understand if the Bible's being literal or not. And here's one. When the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, okay? So that means if what the Bible is saying, if it could literally be true, if it makes sense that it could literally be true, then take it as literally true, Okay, and here's a good example that I could think of. It's This happened several times in the Gospels, but one of the times is in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It's talking about Jesus with the disciples, and it says, He began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. So in case you didn't know, Jesus said this before it all happened. He told them exactly what was going to happen. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. Verse 32, and he said this plainly, (laughs) but obviously the disciples didn't get it because it goes on. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So go back to verse 32 there. He said this plainly. He said, I'm going to be killed and then rise again three days later. He said it as plain as could be, but we all know. Just a little while later, Jesus was killed, and none of the disciples were expecting him to rise again three days later. Like, they probably hadn't even remembered that he had told them all this before. And why didn't they remember it? Because they didn't take him seriously. They thought he was being non-literal. When Jesus was being just as literal as can be. So here's your first rule. When the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Okay, Ezekiel says the Southlands are going to burn. Well, that makes literal sense. So you should understand that as being a literal statement instead of trying to make it mean something else. 
If it makes literal sense, seek no other sense. Okay, here's another thing to notice. Notice when the Bible is using words like, like, or such as. That's called a simile. A simile is whenever you use something that is analogous to something else. When it said the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Okay, that means he's not, it's not saying that he was a dove. He came down like a dove. There's a difference in those two things. You got to pay attention to this real deep when you get into Revelation. It's all throughout Revelation. Sometimes it says something literally plainly, and sometimes it says something with a simile. When John got caught up to heaven in chapter 4, he was given these visions. It says in verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, well, let me slow down there, heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Okay? Some Christians think there's a talking trumpet when you get to heaven. I want you to notice that's not what the Bible said. It said he heard a voice like a trumpet. Okay? It doesn't mean that a trumpet just appeared and started talking to him. John heard a voice and it was like a trumpet. That means it had the characteristics of a trumpet. Okay? Perhaps it was loud and startling, like a trumpet blast. Maybe it had a low tone or a tenor like that of a trumpet but it was not a talking trumpet. It was a voice that reminded John of a trumpet. I guess that would have been, some translations say trumpet, but a shofar horn, that's probably what it was. If you can learn to identify when the Bible is using similes, that's going to help you understand Revelation a whole lot more. It's not going to clear everything up, but it, it will sure help. So sometimes the Bible is literal, and sometimes it uses symbolic language. But, It is all literally true. That's the main takeaway for you today. It wasn't a talking trumpet. It was a voice like a trumpet. But in the end, there was a voice that was heard. It literally happened. There was a literal voice, and John wrote about it. Okay, so we're not going to spiritualize it away just because it was a symbol. It was talking about a real thing. It just used a simile to describe it. Now, notice in these verses today that when God threatened to torch the Southlands, He didn't say it's going to be like the Southlands were set ablaze. He said he didn't say it would be with something like fire. He didn't say it would be like burning the Southlands. He said, I'm going to burn the Southlands. And yet the people were puzzled when Ezekiel reported this. They're like, oh, I wonder what God means by that. Well, what God said made literal sense. It should have been no problem for them to understand what God was saying in a literal way. So if you take God seriously, if you, if you believe God created everything, if you believe God can do anything, let me repeat this again for emphasis, if you take God seriously, then you should never have any problem taking God literally. So let's run through some examples here of times that the Bible is being literal, as literal as it can be, and yet people still will not accept what it's saying for, for whatever reason. I'm not going to try to d- figure out people's motives But for some reason, they won't accept it, even though it's being as literal as can be. Let's go through some examples. Here's one. Hell is literal. And I did a whole episode about this back in episode 38. The Bible teaches that there is eternal conscious torment in hell if you're an unbeliever, if you die without Jesus. And yet, people will twist the Bible all they can into all kinds of knots to make it say that hell is not eternal, or that it's not conscience, or that it's not torment. And there's a lot of discussion about whether the hellfire is literal fire, 
or some kind of symbolic fire. You know, maybe they say, they say oh, maybe it's just a metaphor for something else. Well, I would just say this. You should hope that it's literal fire. Because when the Bible uses a physical object as a symbol to express some kind of spiritual reality, the spiritual reality is always a lot more real and extreme than what the symbol is. Okay, so I'm, what I'm saying is if it's not a literal fire of hell, it's actually something much worse than literal fire. So if trying to say it means something else doesn't mean it's going to be something not so bad. <laughs> okay, here's another reason we should understand that the Bible is being literal when it says that hell is eternal. Because we have no problem understanding that heaven is eternal, right? When you talk about how we're going to live forever in heaven, nobody ever stops you and says, no, wait a minute. Do we, do we really think that the Bible means forever when it says we'll be in heaven forever? Like maybe God just meant it's going to be a really long time. Nobody ever says that whenever you talk about heaven and use the word eternal. But then you start talking about hell and you talk about torment in eternal terms and people start, hold up. Well, maybe, maybe we misunderstood this. Maybe forever isn't forever. When, it, when we start talking about hell, people don't think it means eternal anymore. It doesn't mean it lasts forever. But if we're going to be logically consistent, the same eternity that you can understand happening in heaven is the same eternity that could happen in hell as far as it's going to be eternal. And yet some people will just not accept that. Okay. So here's another good test that you could apply when someone is not going to accept that the Bible teaches eternal conscious torment in hell. Here's another really good test that you should apply. Okay. I need to come up with some kind of name for this test because I use it so much. All right. Here's the test. What would the Bible have needed to say to convince you that it's being literal right here? That's the question you should ask. Okay, in other words, if you can't accept that the Bible teaches eternal conscious torment in hell, then what would it have needed to say? What should it have needed to say if it was going to convince you of that? Okay, if, if there's a better way that the Bible could have put it that could have explained it to you so that you'd believe it was being literal, if there is a better way it could have said it, then maybe the Bible's not being literal. But if it's being as plain as can be, if God is going out of his way to be as clear as can be, as basic as can be, as plain as can be, if it's doing all it can to tell you this and you still won't agree with it, there is nothing that the Bible could have said to convince you. And perhaps then the problem is, is you, that you're just not willing to accept what the Bible is saying, Okay. So I ask people this about the hell thing. All the, Anytime someone disagrees with me about hell, I say, okay. You know, they say there's nothing that could convince me that the Bible teaches eternal conscious torment in hell. All right? If that's what they tell me, then that means they've just closed themselves off to the truth. They're just not going to accept anything that the Bible says about it because they've already made it up in their mind. They just disregard it and try to explain it away, spiritualize it away. So that's the question you got to ask. This is the interpretive principle. Ask this question. If you don't believe the Bible is being literal, what would it have needed to say to convince you that it's being literal right here? I'm going to call that the Taylor test. Okay, it's, it's trademarked now. Call it on this day. The Taylor test for interpreting scripture was born right here on this episode of the podcast. And hell is literal. Here's another thing that we need to remember. The second coming is literal. And I'm talking, of course, about the second coming 
of Christ. There's all kinds of beliefs about the second coming that I'm not going to say they're heretical, but they're just incorrect um, because they try to say that the prophecies about Jesus's return are not things that are literally going to happen. And there's a lot of beliefs that Christians have about the end times. And, it, you know, just because we disagree about end times events doesn't mean that we're not all Christians. But I really, really disagree with the Christians out there who try to kind of like spiritualize the details of end times and say that they're not going to be literally fulfilled. Um, talking about the end times, it's a field of study in, in Bible study called eschatology. And, you know, when it comes to eschatology, again, good Christians can disagree. That's fine. But that's what I'm here for on this podcast. I'm here to disagree today because I have some strong views on this, okay? I take, here's a big surprise, I take what's probably the most literal view when it comes to eschatology. I would be called a a premillennial dispensationalist. That's the big word for my beliefs, okay? Then there's other end times beliefs that are things like postmillennialism and amillennialism. So postmillennialists, they think that the world is just going to keep getting better and better until Jesus comes back, that we're just going to keep improving the world until everybody's accepted Jesus, and then he will come in. Okay, that's what what post-millennials believe. Hey, pray for the post-millennials if you know any of them, okay? Because they're having a really hard time this year. (laughs) They've been having a really hard time since 2020. I see them having these angry meltdowns on Twitter all the time. I know a lot of, I think most of the people I follow on Twitter are post-millennials. They are struggling right now. They're having mental breakdowns because this world is not getting better. They're seeing if they believe that they need to get the world, basically everyone to believe in Jesus before he can come back. They are thinking, oh boy, this is nowhere close to right now. We're we're going backwards, not forwards. So <laughs> pray for the post-millennial in your life. Okay, then you have the millennials. They don't believe in a millennium at all. They like the post-millennials think the millennium will start um, when they get the world perfected or whatever. Uh, or all the world saved. All millennials don't even believe in a. They think that we're in the millennium now, but it's never had anything to do with the span of time. It's just ever since Jesus left this earth, now we're in the millennium. So they think they think that God's victory over sinners is just something that the church fulfills spiritually. They think that Satan is already bound because because it, it says in Revelation twenty that Satan's going to be bound during the millennium. They believe Satan's already bound. And I'm like, well, if that's what you think, then, <laughs> then why does the Bible warn us so much about Satan? Why does the New Testament warn us about Satan if he's bound? <laughs> Those chains must not be very tight. That's a pretty long leash if he's going about as a roaring lion. So people with these views, when they're all millennials, I think they just have no idea what to do with Revelation. I think they just have no idea what when they get to Revelation. They don't even know what to do with it. If they think the millennium is, is, is that we're in it already. Um, I don't know how you, they can't make sense of revelation then everything's off. So here's what I would say. Why should we believe that, that to, to, this could be a whole big topic of it's like a whole podcast episode of itself. Why should we be premillennial dispensationalists? Why should we believe that Jesus is going to come back and then there will be a millennium and, um, that it's not going to start till he gets back. Why should we take all that literally? Here's why, here's why we should take the prophecies about the second coming literally. Because the first coming was fulfilled literally. The first coming was literal. I look back at past prophecies about the coming of Jesus, and I ask myself, were those literally fulfilled, or were they figuratively fulfilled? Did Jesus literally come to this earth? Was he born of a literal virgin, die on a literal cross, 
rise again three literal days later. Well, yes, yes, and yes. If you're a Christian of any stripe, you should have no problem acknowledging all those prophecies were literally fulfilled. So why can't we believe that what the Bible says about the future is going to be literally fulfilled? That God will literally regather the Jews to a literal Israel, that the Antichrist will will be a literal man, he will literally try to exterminate them, that Jesus will literally return and rule from the literal Jerusalem someday. Why can't we take all those as literal too? Like, I believe Jesus is literally going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and reign from Jerusalem as his capital for a literal thousand years because all the prophecies that were the first time were literal. So all the prophecies that are still to come, I think they're going to be literal too. In fact, I just got this book. I just got it today. It's by an author named Jeff Kinley, who I actually just met recently. Um, and I and so I just got his new book. It's, it's, it's his newest book. Um, and I just kind of, as I just, you know, what I do with the new book, I just like open it up to a random page. I don't know why, I just do. <laughs> so I just like open it up to look inside. Okay. And this is what I read right on the page I opened up to. It says, as we survey the Bible, we see hundreds of previous prophecies concerning Jesus's first coming fulfilled literally and precisely as they were written. Here are just 10 of them. His birthplace, his genealogy, his virgin birth, his arrival in Jerusalem, his forerunner, his betrayal, his suffering, his death for sinners, his burial, and his resurrection. It is reasonable to conclude that since all past prophecies were fulfilled at his first coming, all future prophecies related to his return will also be fulfilled in like manner. So I just read that. I'm like, hey, that's exactly what I'm talking about on the podcast this week. I think they were literal the first time. They're going to be literal the second time. I think about this with the Feast of Israel, that the first four were literally fulfilled on the day of the feasts. Back when This happened back when Jesus walked the earth the first time. And talking about those spring feasts, he died as a Passover lamb. He died on Passover. He was in the grave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he rose on the Feast of Firstfruits. And then if you go to the next feast, is the Feast of Weeks, that same year, that's the day the church was born. That was called Pentecost. So the first four feasts were all fulfilled on the day of. But there's three more feasts that the Bible talks about in Leviticus 23, the Fall Feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement, and the the Feast of um, uh, Tabernacles, I think is the last one. Um, And so listen, lots of Bible teachers will try to say, that Jesus fulfilled all those two, but he just fulfilled them in a spiritual sense. Like the first four were all fulfilled on the day of, but the last three, they were just fulfilled symbolically. So I'm like, why? (laughs) If the first four all corresponded to a specific day in history, why not the last three? So I, my theory is that someday something's going to happen with the spring feasts, that they are going to be fulfilled with something on the day of probably something to do with Christ's second coming. So I don't think he's done yet with those feast prophecies. I don't know exactly what they're going to correlate to, but I'm sure they are going to correlate with with something because <laughs> my theory is that God is consistent and God is literal and he was literal before and he's going to be literal in the future. So the second coming is something that's going to be literal. All right, here's another one today. Satan is literal. 
I'm just going to leave that one right there. Honestly, if you don't think Satan is literal, that he literally exists as a, as a, per, as a person, I guess you could say a spiritual being, an evil, malevolent spiritual being. But if you don't believe he's real, I, I honestly have nothing for you. <laughs> I can't do anything for you. Okay. <laughs> Put the Taylor rule of interpretation on that one. If you can't believe that Satan is real. I mean, Jesus had literal conversations with Satan and yet I've heard Christians before they say, oh, well, when, you know, when they cast the demons out, that was just casting sickness out. Well, it was demons. It says it in the Bible. I don't even, I can't even go there with you. If you don't believe what the Bible says on that, if you can't believe Satan was real, if you think it's just, that it's just a metaphor for the forces of evil, I got nothing for you. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Judgment on earth in Revelation is literal. Okay, I want to make that clear. What the Bible says is going to happen in Revelation, it's going to literally happen, especially all that stuff towards the end. You hear this from people sometimes. Oh, I like Jesus, but I sure don't care for that vengeful Old Testament God, not the angry Old Testament God. I don't believe in him, but I like that Jesus guy. Do, do the people who say that, who, who supposedly like Jesus, have they even read the New Testament? <laughs> I mean, I don't think the people who say stuff like that even read the Bible, period. But Jesus said that he and the Old Testament God, that they are one. He said that he is the same as his father. And so by the time you finish Revelation, you can't draw a line between them and say they're two different types of people, two different, two different deities. And by the time you finish Revelation, the things that Jesus is doing on planet Earth, they are just as extreme as anything you read about God doing in the Old Testament. All right, look at Revelation 6, verse 15. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It's talking about the tribulation right there. People are so terrified of Jesus. That when the terror of the Lord falls on these people, it says they're fleeing to the mountains. They're saying, man, it'd be better for a rock to fall on me and squish me than it would be for me to live on this earth for another day. Because the stuff that Jesus is doing on this earth, it's so terrifying. And you might say, well, if that's what these people think, why don't they just kill themselves? Because I would think people would be suicidal in the tribulation. If you read about what it's going to be like, wouldn't they just be wanting to jump off a building or something to do anything it would take to escape it? People are going to be miserable on this planet. And yet, it says in Revelation, people are going to try and they won't be able to. Revelation 9, 6, it says, And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. <laughs> That's a sobering verse right there. I don't even know how to. It's a supernatural thing that only God can do. He's going to keep people from killing themselves. I can't really explain it other than that. I don't know how exactly, but I believe it's literally going to be, be true in the future. Such a different mindset than Christians have. Uh, Christians, you know, for us Christians, the worst thing that can happen to us is death. And even then, that's not so bad, right? Because <laughs> if, if we die, we just go into the presence of Jesus, and we just live with him for forever and ever. Um, d Pastor Tim Keller, who just recently passed away, he had pancreatic cancer, and um, his family said that these were his last words. The last words of Tim Keller before he died. He said, there is no downside for me leaving. 
Not in the slightest. Those are his last words. There's no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. He was ready to go. See, for the Christian, we live a joyous life. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. We can all have joy. We live that way on this earth, and then we pass away someday if the rapture doesn't come first. And immediately when we die, we go somewhere better. But for the non-Christian, that's not their reality. This world is the closest thing to heaven they're ever going to get. And it says in the tribulation, they're going to want to die because there's going to be such terrible things going on on the planet. And yet, God is going to supernaturally prevent them from killing themselves. He's inflicting this immense suffering on them, and he won't even allow them to kill themselves to escape it. And I believe all these things are literally true. These things will literally happen. And you say, but but Revelation has lots of symbolism in it. How can we take this so seriously? Well, yes, some of it is, is symbols. Some of it is also literal. Maybe Revelation has more symbols than other books of the Bible do, but we can't just throw everything in it away and say, oh, it's just symbolic. We can make it mean whatever we want. Some of it is literal, and some of it is symbolism, but the symbols are just codes for literal things. It's all literally going to happen. Here's another one that I think is really important. The thousand-year reign of Christ is literal. As I said, I am a premillennial dispensationalist. I believe that God is literal when he says that he's going to have Jesus reign over this earth for 1,000 years. That idea comes from Revelation 20. I'm going to read some verses here from Revelation 20, and I just want you to count every single time when it says that Jesus would reign for 1,000 years. Okay? Let's read Revelation 20, starting at the beginning. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So there's one, a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years, that's two, were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's three. The rest of the, of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years, four, were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. <laughs> so there's number five. Verse seven, and when the thousand years are ended, <laughs> Satan will be released from his prison. That makes six. It says six times in Revelation 20 that it's a thousand years. Is that not enough for people? <laughs> like, what more do you need to hear? Okay. <laughs> it said it six times. And yet m- the majority of Christians will not believe that there's going to be a thousand year kingdom of Christ in the future. So the Taylor rule of Bible interpretation, if you don't believe that the millennium is going to be for a thousand years, what would the Bible need to say to convince you that the thousand years is 1000 years long? Because it's already said it six times, okay? What does it need to say? Would, would you believe it if it said it a seventh time? Would you believe it if it said it an eighth time? 
Just give me your number. How many times does it need to say it before you will believe it? And this is not something like, it's not like it says, oh, in some places it says it's going to be 20 years. And in some places it says it's going to be 200 years. And others say 10,000 years. No, it only ever gives one length of time for the, for the millennium, a thousand years. So someone might say, oh, but that's just revelation. It's full of symbols. Well, read the chapter in context. It's talking about Satan. Satan is literally real. It calls him the serpent. He was literally a serpent in the Garden of Eden. It talks about those beheaded for Jesus. Has that literally happened? Yes. It's going to happen some more in the, in the tribulation. The millennium is real. It'll be a thousand years. The Bible couldn't be more plain if it tried. The 1,000-year reign is literal. Well, we will close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. Um, Before we do, I would like to pay tribute to a couple of ministry leaders who have actually passed away recently. And so if you're not if you're not interested in this part of the Bible study, that's okay. You can you can skip ahead. Um, if you go to the show notes, I always put timestamps in there. So if you just want to go straight to the closing thoughts for today, that is fine. I've basically got through my main point for today already. So if you made it this far, if you're good, then we're good. But if you but I would just before we go, I don't want to bore anybody, but I would just like to take a moment to honor a couple guys. Um, and I'll say this too: if you got a question on this subject today, if you got a challenge for me. Whatever you want, leave a comment or shoot me an email. My email is crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects you'd like to hear me talk about in the future. So, um, okay. In my study area, my, my office, if I can call it that, I've got hundreds of books. And and it's because I'm a nerd like that. I love books. There's some authors whose books I love so much that I've collected their works to such a great degree they will have a whole shelf on one of my bookshelves all to themselves. I've got a few different authors like that. C.S. Lewis, John Bevere, and I've got a few others. And then in just this odd, in an odd twist of fate, I guess you might say, two of those authors whose books occupied entire shelves on my shelves, two of them have passed away in just the past few months. Both of them from the same thing, from pancreatic cancer. And so it's just kind of strange for me. Um, makes me sad. I want to pay tribute to them for a few moments because, and when I say this, I'm not I'm not just saying this to be dramatic. Um, if it weren't for these two men, this podcast would not exist. Uh, this this podcast wouldn't be here. Uh, they taught me so much. I wouldn't be I wouldn't feel equipped to share the Bible with other people if it hadn't been for what I'd already learned from these two men. So number one here, uh, I want to talk about Michael Heiser for a moment. He died on February 20th of this year, died at the age of 60. I first heard of him in a radio interview um, well, <laughs> that I was doing, that I was conducting the interview. It was for a book called Supernatural that came out in 2015. So that must have been when I did the interview. And this book, it opened my eyes to so much of what I would say is is hidden, but hidden right in front of my eyes in the Bible. Guys, there is so much in the Bible that we don't even realize is there. There is so much information given to us about the supernatural realm and how it operates. You know, a lot of us think things, you know, angels and demons, you know, all that stuff that goes on that we can't see. We don't know what's happening. That's what a lot of people think. 
you would be surprised at how much the Bible actually does tell us about those things. And so Michael Heiser, I think I've read all of his books now. Um, his greatest book is called The Unseen Realm. And um, and like I said, I actually got an opportunity to speak to Michael Heiser. That was the, basically how I came to know any of his work is by talking to him. I worked at this radio station where I would do this program called Author's Corner, and I got to interview authors regularly. And he was one of my guests. And I thought, you know, I, I kind of looked at his book. I'm like, well, it looks it looks interesting, but I don't know if this is some kind of weirdo. Um, it looked really unique. So I interviewed him. I thought, well, if he is some weirdo, I just won't run the interview. And he he, will, he was a major weirdo, but <laughs> come to find out, he was spot on in many of the things that he taught. And so I highly recommend his work. The Unseen Realm is a great place to start with him. Then a second author died this past week, actually. And this one hit me even harder. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller passed away on May 19th. Tim Keller started a church in New York City called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It was like 1989. He built this thing into a mega church. Then a few years back, he decided it was too big. Like it had gotten just too big. And he wanted he broke it up into like five smaller churches. And I just say that to say this man, he was not someone with just this big ego who just wanted to build an empire to his own greatness. Not saying that's what all mega churches are. But he was totally willing to just break it down and walk away from it when it was getting too big. His focus was on the gospel and how to present the gospel to people in the modern age. And he really kind of came to to fame, I guess, in the late 2000s. So if you don't remember that time, there was an explosion of atheism. That was when the internet was really starting to take off. And these internet atheists, they just exploded. There were some really popular ones like Richard Dawkins. Christopher Hitchens, um, Sam, Sam's, I can't remember his name now, Sam something. There's like four guys that were called the four horsemen of, of atheism. Anyway, they spawned an angry horde of, of atheists online because these, these prominent atheists were so influential, but also during that time, God raised up some great leaders, some great light to meet this great darkness of this rise of atheism. And we started getting these really incredible apologetics leaders, people like William Lynn Craig, Norman Geisler, Frank Turek. I would put Tim Keller on the list as well. So Tim Keller's style of preaching, and he, he preached in New York, and it was always trying to keep in mind that you had a certain number of unbelievers in the crowd, people who had not bought into Christianity. And so he would always be extra careful in how he communicated Christianity's ideas. He wouldn't say anything too crazy. He always brought a lot of evidence-based arguments, evidence-based reasoning to the stuff he said. He, he always kept up with the latest scientific insights, and he knew all the important philosophers, all their thought processes, so he could relate to people. He could meet these people where they were at. And, uh, and he came out with a book that was called The Reason for God. This is my second favorite book of all time. My, my favorite is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. That's the first Reason for God is a close second. It's one of those books that I just always keep an extra copy so I can just give it away. If I meet someone that, that I think they could benefit from it, I just give it to them. I always keep an extra copy. Um, this book, it just gives logical reasons for believing in God, but it, it's incredibly useful to a, someone who's saved because it just shows them all the logic behind their faith. So I recommend it for Christians too. It gives you just so much of a deeper understanding of why God does 
the things that he does. You know, as I'm going to say later, yes, sometimes we got to take things on faith. We aren't going to understand everything. But if you will actually take the time and dig in, like God will show you, uh, there are a lot of reasons for why he says certain things. You know, we can come to an awareness of those things. And that just grows my faith when I come to that understanding. So uh, um, the answers are there whenever we dig into scripture. Scripture always has the answers to society's problems. And Tim Keller talked, uh, taught me how to look for those things. He inspired me to put my faith to work. I remember I spent a few years volunteering at a homeless shelter about, this was like a decade ago. Um, I would stay there overnight once a week. And then uh, I, I, we spent several years after that becoming foster parents. And, and um, I'm almost certain that I would not have done those things if it had not been for Tim Keller showing me the beauty of the gospel and how it can compel us to live sacrificially. And not only that, I, I went into pastoring around that time, and I don't. I am certain I could not have been spiritually prepared enough to step into it in my early days of ministry um, if it hadn't been for Tim Keller's influence on my life. Like my first dozen or so messages that I ever taught, they were probably just kind of stolen from his notes. <laughs> um, he just had this, uh, it, it was just so profound to me. I just wanted to, to be able to speak like him. My He had a really excellent book around that time called The Prodigal God. And I recommend that one to everybody too. It just brings you to such a deeper understanding of God's grace using the story of the prodigal son. And it's just one of those, I think everybody should read it. So um, now Tim Keller, he he started to make some troubling statements in the past few years. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word woke to describe him, but I would say, I think he really misunderstood the cultural moment that we've been in, in the past few years in regard to things like black lives matter, immigration, vaccines, all that kind of stuff. I think he did not understand what kind of world we were living. I think he's, it's like he still thought we lived in the world of the Clinton era in the 90s. And things have really changed. And so I I just say that to say I'm not endorsing everything he's ever said. I disagree strongly with some of the things he said the past few years. I, I know some people would say, oh, it was just the cancer making him messing with his brain. I don't, I don't know if I'd say that. I don't think he's an evil guy. I think he was just mistaken. And, uh, but I don't, I don't want to just take the past few years and judge him. I don't want to throw out all the good stuff he did before that. Like he has a large body of work. Up until 2020, I had bought and read every single last one of his books. I made my list of my top 10 favorite books a while back. Like three of his books are in my top 10. Okay. So I'm not just going to throw them all out just because he made some bad judgments the past few years. I just want to acknowledge that though. I guess I just also want to just express some appreciation for that man uh, who just helped me so much in my spiritual growth. And I'm, and I'm, listen, I'm honored to say I was given a few opportunities to interview him uh, also when I was doing that radio show. I think I got three interviews with him around like 2013 to 2016. But unlike the Michael Heiser one, like I was a big fanboy of Tim Keller when I got to to speak with him. And yet when I talked to him, like I kept my cool. Um, If I remember right, I, I didn't even use the suggested interview questions that they sent along whenever I talked to him. You know, I just I just talked to him and he was incredibly gracious. Um, my work, they only gave me a 12 minute time slot for the interview, but the publishing company offered me 20 minutes. <laughs> so I just took the whole 20. <laughs> I was like, I just didn't tell him. I just edited it down later. But um, I just I thought, man, I get 20 minutes to talk to Tim Keller. I've read all of his books and 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 I just I just took it. So um, I'm and I was even more honored 
because I said I talked to him like three times and he remembered me from the previous times that we had done the interviews. And this is a guy gets interviewed all over the place. But I was so honored that like he remembered me and he said he really appreciated our talks because um, since I had read his books and I was so familiar with his thought processes on things that I could just connect with him on a deeper level. And like, so I would ask questions that, that spoke, they weren't necessarily on the paper that he gave me, but they were things that he could speak to and I could connect with him on that deeper level. The fact that he would acknowledge that though, and that he, he just, he said that he enjoyed our talks. That just meant so much to me. It touched my heart so much. So, um, anyway, I know I've kind of rambled on about this for a while, but I just couldn't let this, all that stuff of him passing away. I couldn't let that go by without just taking a few moments to, to express that somewhere. So, um, anyway, thank you, Pastor Tim. Uh, I don't think this podcast and I don't think my ministry career would even exist without you. And, uh, I can't wait to see you again. Okay, well, I've talked long enough for today, so I'm not going to do the whole big the whole big recap of everything. But here's what I want you to remember. We talked about the Taylor test for today. Okay, the Taylor test for interpreting scripture. It's this. If the Bible isn't being literal, then what would it have needed to say in order to convince you that it's being literal? Okay, if you're not taking something it said literally, here's just a good question to ask yourself. Hey, sometimes you, sometimes you will be. You will come to the conclusion Oh, yeah, I guess if it was literal, it could have said this. It You know, it will work itself out that way sometimes. But sometimes also we'll look at it and say, oh, actually, I think God is being as clear and plain as can be, and I just need to get on the same page with him. So if there was a different way the Bible could have said it, then, then hey, maybe it wasn't being literal. But if there's no way it could have been more plain, then perhaps the problem is you if you have trouble accepting it. So apply the Taylor test to what Jesus was telling his disciples again and again and again. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise three days later. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise three days later. And he kept telling them that before it happened. Mark 8, 32, it said, he said this plainly. And yet they couldn't believe, even though he couldn't have been any plainer. But the problem was them. And when we won't take God and the Bible, literally, the problem is us. So our application, our closing thought for the day, Take God seriously. God means what he says and says what he means. Now, sometimes we don't understand. This is the lesson I'm always trying to learn. Um, Because like my four-year-old, as I mentioned before, he loves to say why all the time. And I actually love that. Uh, I, I just love that he's thinking about why things work the way that they do. And when I, whenever I can, I try to actually answer his whys. I know most people hate that question from their kids. I love it because I I just love that he's thinking about how things fit together. And that's what I'm always doing. I'm trying to ask myself why about things. But then there's going to be those moments where the answer of why is going to be something that's too complicated for his four-year-old mind to understand. He can't understand everything about how the world works at the age of four. It's above his level. And so when it comes to that, then he just has to trust me. And I tell him, you don't have to know why. You just have to obey. And I feel like God tells me that a lot too, that I don't have to understand. I just have to obey. It's like when God was talking to that young prophet in uh, 1 Kings 13, 
He said, you know, hey, go, go back. Don't go by the way you came before. Go a different way. Now, God didn't say why. He didn't say like, oh, hey, if you take this, if you go back this way, you're going to get a, in a bad wreck on the freeway. And so don't do that. Just go home a different way. God didn't say why. He just said, do it. And some people will not obey God unless they understand why. But if you only obey God when you understand why, you're not really obeying him. You're just agreeing with him. And sometimes we have to obey even when we don't know why. And, and that's okay. That's the real test. Just earlier today, you know, I, was, I was just thinking, I still haven't quite figured out why God put me on this earth. And I wish I knew why, but I just don't feel like God's revealed that to me yet. And, and you know what? Maybe he won't anytime soon. But I know what I'm supposed to do today. I know what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. I think I know what I'm supposed to do this week and next week. So, you know, for now, I'm just going to operate in that until he tells me more. Because I'm not called to understand. I'm just called to obey. And we need to obey God and, and obey God quickly because he means what he says and he says what he means. And we need to take the things that God says seriously and take them literally. Don't try to spiritualize it away. Don't assume it's a metaphor if it makes literal sense. Don't look for an excuse to get out of it. Don't make up a reason that you're the exception. Don't fear man and disobey God. Just believe it and obey it. God means what he says, and he says what he means. And it's extremely important for you to believe it and obey it. I couldn't even begin to tell you how important that is. I literally can't even. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, read The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser and The Prodigal God by Tim Keller.